Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the Cabrogal clan of the Darug Nation, who are the traditional custodians of this land we are meeting on today. We also pay our respects to the elders past, present and future of the Darug Nation. Hey friends, welcome to our podcast, A Seat at Our Table. Candid conversations about our Asian Australian experiences in the creative industry. I'm Tracy. I'm Wendy. We We saved saved you a seat. seat. Come Come join join us. us. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Hello. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) We never quite know what to do with the intro, hey? Yeah, we never really have an opening, but hi, it's us again. Surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Today, we're going to be talking about the current state of diversity and equity inclusion in our creative industry, our experiences with it, and our actions for the future. So to give everybody kind of a introduction i guess we're going to be framing this episode using a report that recently came out about diversity and inclusion in the creative space mm-hmm. it's called the create space census and this was something that was done across um australia's advertising industry and it was the kind of the first industry-wide diversity equity inclusion survey that was ran by the advertising council australia and cancer so we'll be using that to kind of frame and prompt our discussions today yeah but to kind of begin and set the stage, Wendy, um, since becoming more aware of DNI in the industries, what has your observations of DNI been, and how do you feel that your industry and your workplace is doing in DNI? Yeah, this is a really good question. I guess it's not something that I've um, reflected on recently because I think having moved through different workplaces in the past years, so I've moved like twice. It's harder to gauge this when you haven't been in a place for a real long time. Mm. So just reflecting on my past like three years of experience and what I've seen in the industry, I think when I was in uni, I couldn't help but notice that graphic design or visual communication was really dominated by females. Whereas in other design courses, such as like uh, industrial design, that was more like male dominant. Mm. But in terms of cultural diversity, I didn't think that there was a large amount of like Asian Australians doing the course. Um, So when I went into the industry, I had this perspective that a lot of the designers that I would be working with would probably be females, right? Um, And that's the case that I see now. Like I feel like a lot of the people that I work with are like female designers. Um, But as I've moved into product design, it's been a little bit more balanced because if you think about background, the educational background that people come from, product design spans over several like types of design. Yeah. So like industrial design, but also graphic design. And so I think it's been a bit more balanced in terms of gender, but still culturally, I wish I could see a little bit more mm. people from like my background or also from similar like socioeconomic backgrounds as me. And it's hard to gauge that unless you really get to know someone and know their story. That's true. As yeah. well. You can make assumptions, but that's not, yeah. Yeah. But I think um, in terms of my workplace specifically at Future Friendly, I've only been there for about four months. Mm -hmm. So in leadership and the general team, I'm seeing that there is a lot of gender diversity, which is reassuring. And I know that there's um, specific people within the team working on things like the reconciliation action plan regularly. So making strides in that. But I haven't really seen much in terms of diversity and inclusion, in terms of how do they approach that with like recruitment? Because I'm not Mm. very uh, involved in that, but that's something that I've spoken to, you know, my seniors about like wanting to get more involved in and 
like, you know, getting more involved with, I guess, like juniors and how do we hire people and where do we hire them from? So I guess I'm making a conscious effort to make that like a plan for myself. But I think what I've noticed is in agencies, you're, I think the onus is on the people and like a single, not a single person, but like a collective to really champion it. Yeah. Rather than um, I noticed at Deloitte, it's like there is a team specifically focused on right. D&I. So in, in agency, I guess it's like not as official. Mm. Whereas if you're in a big organization, it's almost like if you don't do it, then it's going to appear in the media. Yeah. And you're not doing anything about it. Not like education, for example, where they've got yeah. a governing body. Exactly. Yeah. With yeah. regulations and everything to be a free for. Yeah. yeah. So I think – in agencies, it's less apparent mm-hmm. because you need people to champion it and you need people to really push it forward. Yeah. Like what I'm seeing also is in leadership, like there's a lot more obviously white dominant yes. males, right? Yeah. But now it's like we emerge into the industry. I'm seeing a lot more like culturally diverse mm-hmm. people like myself come into the workforce and kind of influence change mm-hmm. from the bottom up. Yeah. 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 How about you in advertising? Um, I think I'm seeing that as well. I feel like um, definitely in recent times, I'm seeing like a surge of focus on diversity and inclusion, which has been really great. Similar to Wendy, I think gender representation, gender diversity has always been, I think, quite good. Like I've generally always worked in majority female teams Mm. and departments. Um, I guess the only part where I would see discrepancy is when you start going to the top obviously more males Mm -hmm. but I think generally I've never really been like oh I'm the only female or I don't feel any discrimination because I'm a female or overt discrimination because I'm a female so I feel like that I've always been like quite proud of in terms of like oh all the places I've been all the agencies I've worked for I feel like gender diversity was quite done quite well um obviously there's still more work to do in terms of you know, non-binary, um, queer people. So, but mm. then in terms of like female male split, it's been quite good. Um, but like Wendy, I think cultural and social economic diversity has not been as prominent. I always find that like, yeah, there's a not a lot of minority representation, but even more so, there's not a lot of people from low SES backgrounds. Yeah. But I am kind of pretty excited that at the moment the industry everyone's taking action i'm seeing my company specifically um take more action ever since this create space report was released we've kind of done working groups working sessions with the whole company of what can we do about dni they've got an action plan for like building a group afterwards to kind of champion it but also have regular workshops with the wider company to work on dni so i think we're at a very exciting time at the moment that the first step is done which is recognizes as an issue with diversity but now it's good to see companies kind of take action on it yeah so that's kind of um our kind of experience so far with it but definitely today we want to go into the key findings of this report so the census the create space census was done across professionals across the advertising media and marketing industry so a whole bunch of different agencies which i think will be quite similar to your industry i guess because mm-hmm. it covers designers creatives everyone so it's yeah. kind of really i look at the creative industry and data was collected from over 2.5k professionals and findings cover gender age ethnicity sexual orientation social economic background disability mental health neurodiversity and cultural norms so like really looking at our experience across those different 
areas of diversity. And what's really exciting is that the census will be repeated next year, but also every two years after that. Mm. So it's keeping us accountable yeah, as well. Yeah, so let's dive into, I guess, like the good and the mm. bad that we have, I guess, observed from the um, census itself. So some of the good points are we have an overarching inclusion index score of 62, which is far higher than our Australian national norm of 43 and just below the global industry scores of 64. So that's pretty good, That's right? pretty good. Yeah. yeah, compared to like Australian national norm. Yeah. yeah. I think we're doing well. And it's actually better than other industries globally. So looking at financial services, retail, professional services, and public sector, which is kind of surprising, actually. Yeah. Yeah. But then when you think about it, I'm kind of like, oh, maybe it makes sense. Because I, I feel like when we talk to other people in our friends who work in other areas, they don't really have initiatives about yeah. D&I where we always like I think I've always been exposed to like teams or groups at work that are D&I council or whatever it is mm. I wonder if it's because of the problems that we're trying to solve mm. within our industries is, is inherently very like people focused that's true um like I know for sure yeah. like the kind of briefs that I work on it's all about the customer right yeah. and so you want to have um diverse perspectives yeah. and lived experiences helping you inform like the product that you're yeah, creating i think so yeah, yeah. And maybe because we're a younger industry as well maybe like i don't i feel like the creative space the creative mm. industry we're kind of known to be like open we're always pushing for change we're trying to live with the time so maybe yeah. that's also why it's like that yeah those are just our assumptions yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah but in this report 75 percent of respondents felt a strong sense of belonging to their company and 90 percent felt that they are valued and an essential part of their direct team. Junior staff had highest inclusion score of 67 and 73% say that their company are actively taking steps to improve and 53% say that we can do more. Yeah, so I think that's quite positive. I feel like it's not doom and gloom. Like at least people feel that the companies are trying to do something. Um, But there's also the bad, I guess. That was the good. Now we look at the bad the bad is one in five people are likely to leave the industry based on a lack of inclusion and discrimination. And this is compared to one in seven in the global census. There's also a high likelihood of turnover in marginalized staff, including women, gender non-conforming, LGBTQI plus people, people with physical or mental health conditions, and those from ethnic minority groups. 8% of women have experienced sexual harassment in the last 12 months, which is kind of scarily a large number, like mm. 8%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, only 53% are aware of the company's DNI strategies, policies, and procedures, and negative behaviors or microaggressions are widely reported across the industry. So it's, it's interesting. I think overall, it seems like people acknowledge that DNI is, I don't know, it's a thing that the industry cares about, but when you kind of dive deeper, there are still some issues there that we need to fix. Yeah. I kind of liken it to like the um, topic of climate change, right? Like it's like a very present topic that mm. everybody is talking about. But when you go beneath the surface and ask the hard questions of like, okay, what is your company doing or what are you doing? Yeah. People probably find it harder to answer because they haven't been exposed to the right things to help them answer those questions. Yeah, as well. it's like going the next step further. Yeah, yeah. so I feel like, we're talking about it, but we need to go that one step further to actually take action mm, and yeah. do something about it. That's kind of what I interpret from these yeah. stats. Yeah. Cool. The next 
section, we're going to take a look, a closer look at the results per segment and the key callouts from it. So the first segment we'll look at is gender. So despite being a majority female workforce, gender still attracts the greatest discrimination. So at the junior exec level, 68% are female, but when it gets to C-suite and executive management level, only 46% are female. So it actually decreases as you get higher in the levels and ranks. I I actually, when you were saying that a lot of graphic designers are females or people in designers are female, Mm. I actually noticed that a lot of the designers I work with are female, but when you look at who is the creative director, Director. generally male. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. Like all the creative directors um, or people that I've interacted with as like leadership yeah. have mostly been male as well. Yeah. Yeah, and that's like across – I was in consulting yeah. and then I went into like a very specific like service design agency yeah. and now I'm in product design agency. Yeah. So even across all of those, I'm noticing that as well. Yeah. So what we can deduce from like those stats are we are – employing more women but are less less successful in recruiting and retaining them all the way to the top. I definitely see that not so much in my own uh, agency mm. but because we work so much with clients mm. I definitely see that because the clients we work with tend to be more I guess like traditional organizations such yeah. as like retail or professional services or like financial institutions yeah. as well so I definitely do see that in their teams. Mm. Uh, Many women feel undervalued and disrespected, so they're six times more likely to experience gender discrimination, and females, especially those in middle management, are at a much higher risk of leaving the industry altogether. That's really sad. It's really sad. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like you feel like you're pressured to leave because there's just nothing you can do about the experiences that you're facing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that goes to show that like if you don't have people that you feel comfortable reaching out to Mm -hmm. who you know are in the same boat as you like maybe that's female maybe that's culturally diverse people or people who have come from a similar background to you you feel like there's no escape except to leave yes yeah yeah um non-binary people which makes up one percent of the workforce have a weaker sense of inclusion and face more negative behavior So reflecting on all those stats, Mm. Tracy, maybe let's think about um, or reflect on what has been our experience being female in our industry. Have we felt undervalued, disrespected, treated differently due to gender? And do we have any like experiences or microaggressions? Yeah, I think I've never felt like me being a female has disadvantaged me, especially when I've always worked in female dominant teams. I've had really great female mentors and leaders to look up to. So it's always been really great. But I do reflect on this and think about like microaggressions that I've observed. And maybe I didn't know at the time, but definitely I've noticed things such as, for example, male colleagues speaking over female colleagues, Mm. or not listening to them and then rephrasing their answer and taking it as if it's their own. Yeah. I've definitely seen it in a client perspective where we've had female leaders present to a group of like male clients and mm-hmm. they I feel like they the, the female opinion isn't as valued as when a, I don't know a male strategist comes in and says the exact same thing and they go oh wow that's amazing so wow, I've definitely really? seen yeah I've definitely noticed started noticing that more I've also noticed like I don't know if you get it but like sometimes male colleagues feel like they need to come in and save the day 
<laughs> How so? I don't know. So it'll be like, well, I don't know. There'll be an issue at work or like you'll just be kind of venting to a male colleague, but then they feel like they need to fix the problem. Mm. So I don't know if there's like a heroic kind of aspect to it as well. Um, and also one that I've noticed is people asking the female colleagues to help set up a room or clean up a room, or it's not even asked to, but if after a meeting, you know, it's always the females cleaning up after the mess, like yeah. after a client meeting, when who brings out the drinks, who sets the table, like it's always, for well, me, I've noticed it's always the females who take the initiative and go, let me go bring the water in. Let me pour everyone's glasses. And then after the meeting ends, male colleagues just walk out the door and then like there's a mess here and it's always for me I've noticed that the female colleagues always pick up the slack and they they clean up the mess yeah I can't say that I've witnessed that mainly because like I guess whenever we've had meetings or had scenarios like that we've been in a conference space where it's like there are people hired to do that right yeah um and also with work working from home you don't really notice that anymore because you're not in the setting to do those things yeah, so it comes as a surprise that I think I've had really different experiences. Mm, yeah. And I guess like what you were saying about the male needing to come in to save the day, I think it's less about like what they say, but also it's more so how they go about doing yeah. something and like their actions yeah. speak louder than words, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. When I was reflecting on this question about my experiences of being female in the industry, I think um, I realized that subconsciously, if I'm presenting to males and specifically someone in leadership, this happened when I was like, I guess a lot more inexperienced, mm-hmm. I would inherently just feel intimidated from True. the get go. Yeah. And there would be an internal dialogue within myself thinking like, A, I'm young, B, I'm female, C, I'm Asian. Yeah. What do you, what does that mean in terms of how they're going to see me and the opinions that mm. I hold as a person? Um, so I think that really intimidated me when I was going through, uh, my job as like a graduate at yeah. Deloitte, because a lot of the time it was like presenting to male leaders or like males in the C-suite. Yeah. So I think as a result of that, like I've tried to learn not to be so intimidated, but it's also dependent on the, I guess the structure or the environment that your team builds mm-hmm. for you as well because at future friendly we really truly believe in everyone presents their own work and so no matter what level you're at you're responsible for the thing that you created whereas previously it's kind of like whoever's at the top is primarily known as the person who presents everything Mm. and then you're you're there as a junior to just support right and yeah that's kind of where I felt I guess like I've questioned whether or not it's because I'm female or because I'm young or because I'm Asian. That's true. Yeah. yeah. You never know if it's, is it because I'm female or yeah, Asian or young. Yeah. It could be a combination, the intersection between. That. So I just made yeah. assumptions rather than, I guess, someone um, discriminating me directly. Mm. But I have had a bad experience where um, someone from like the same organization was like giving, he was a senior manager and he was giving me feedback about, how I communicate. Okay. And then he was basically saying to me, like I was trying to get entry to the client building and he Skyped me and he was just like, I forget what the message was, but he was essentially telling me like, um, I'm a really busy person. Like you should have told me that you needed entry, entry to the building. Yeah. And 
the thing is he didn't pull me aside to tell me yeah. like we were working in person that day mm. but because he I, I don't want to make assumptions about what he was doing or make excuses for him but he literally just sent me a Skype message to give me feedback and I'm like you really could have just pulled me aside face to face told me this yeah. feedback right I would have rather you know receive it that way and it was kind of like really passive aggressive yeah and from that moment I just had a really bad like a sour taste in my mouth about him as a leader as someone who I couldn't go to if I had issues on this project and similarly on the same project one of the male grads he was telling me like oh you shouldn't email the director because he's a really busy person Mm. he's like oh you shouldn't email him asking questions about like printing and I was like um I have established this relationship with this director and this is how we're going to communicate but like the fact that that I think those experiences is where it relates back to what you were saying about males coming in feeling like they need to say yeah or they need to like assert dominance yeah Yeah. or have an opinion it's like okay like why are you telling me this like do you want me to improve or it's just because you want me to know what your opinion is exactly but what's the benefit of it? Like yeah. if you want to, if you want me to improve as a person, then that's totally the wrong approach to take. Yeah. But that was like, say three years ago. And that goes back to, you know, it's about the environment that you create for your team. If you create an open dialogue to give feedback, then you wouldn't need to use things like email or Skype to give feedback. And I think that's kind of like what was wrong with that project team. Like that's how they communicated Avoiding with each that- other real con- like yeah. communication or conflict yeah it is. yeah yeah i i feel like i've noticed that like the leaders who are most effective generally for me they're female because i think they're more empathetic yeah but also i've noticed really great male leaders but they tend to be more in touch with their emotions yes a hundred percent yeah and they're not afraid to talk about things like their home life or yes. their lived experiences yeah. right whereas the ones that i feel like are harder to reach or connect to to other ones that kind of hold up a persona mm. of like something like you can't touch me. <laughs> yeah, I'm type always right. I can never yeah. be wrong type vibe. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's, yeah, it's interesting observing and kind of reflecting on those experiences now because definitely at the time I just felt like absolutely shit being yeah. on the receiving end of them. And because of, I guess, the organization that I was in, I and the level that I was at as a junior as well I just thought oh this must be normal right so I guess I'll just like sit it up and <laughs> soak it in right and it goes back to those stats that we just went through it's I could have if I felt very overwhelmed I could have just been like I hate this I want to leave yeah exactly rather than thinking like oh maybe I should talk to someone about this mm-hmm. and raise it as a concern but I felt like okay as a grad I shouldn't have an opinion so yeah. let's not talk about yeah. it yeah but I think the good thing about like things like this initiative is like once you people are aware of it it gives them like a platform to talk about it yeah yeah I talk about those experiences all the time even now that I've moved on from the organization and I said to my founder the other day I was like he was just asking me like how are you finding your experience at Future Friendly I was like honestly compared to my past (laughs) this is absolutely amazing so good and that's because I've had bad lived experiences. Yeah. So now I know what I have is actually good. Yeah. So on that, like, have you ever thought about leaving your job or your industry because of your gender? Not necessarily because of my gender, but maybe because I didn't see representation of where I could go in terms of my future. Mm, okay. I didn't see examples of what I could attain. And so 
therefore it kind of felt impossible. Yeah. And my only like, I guess way out of that was like, I'm going to go and find more like-minded people or I'm going to find a company that has like people in leadership because it feels a lot more attainable that way. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can't be what you can't see, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think I haven't like immediately thought about it, but I've definitely looked into my future. Like I've gone, I don't ever, I at the moment, I don't think I would stay in this industry permanently, if that makes mm. sense, because of the things I'm aware of, which is like pay is not that great, the pay gap. I feel like with family responsibilities in the future, it's a very demanding industry. Yeah. Like I think work-life balance is better on client side. <laughs> so yeah. I've always thought like, yeah, in the future when I like want to settle down, when I have a family, I would rather go client side or another job where I actually do nine to five. Yeah. And I don't have to work so hard for such little pay. Yeah. And I think that comes with, I guess, your female responsibilities. Like, I feel like males don't really have to worry about, like, having a child, supporting a child. I mean, they probably do, but, like, you know what I mean? Like, having time off and things like that. So I think I've thought about that in the future, but, like, not in the present. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I ever reached um, kind of the decision that I would stay at a place for a real long time until I came to Future Friendly, mainly because of, like, a lot of the people who are in leadership in my team, they're all new mums and Mm -hmm. dads and we're quite a young team. And so I was like, that could be me in like 10 or 15 years and seeing how they flex their time with like school pickup or, you know, taking um, parental leave. It's the same for both males and females. And I just feel like because I see that in leadership, it feels like, that's the future that I'm like heading towards. Mm. If I get to that point in my life, yeah. that's what it would look like, yeah. the flexibility. That's a good point because honestly, I I work with mums who work part-time like four days a week and they're still working on Fridays, even though it's their days off. Because during the week, they've got care responsibilities, like picking up children, which is everyone is fine about, like everyone's flexible. They can flex their time. But I feel like they feel that they've got so much work left at the end of the week, they have to work on their day off. Oh, that's crazy. Yes, I think, yeah, like you said, it's kind of leadership setting that expectation and, yeah. I guess, like, your work is a lot more, like, deadline-based and there's a lot more writing on it, right? Because you're delivering something. We are also delivering something, but um, I guess because I've seen uh, leadership kind of say to us or, like, people who are advising us on our projects pretty much say, like, if you need more time, let's work that out Mm. like let's figure out if we need to add more scope to this project or if we need to de-scope certain things so having that in mind and that coming from leadership makes me think that like we do it in such an unapologetic way that people really value who you are as a person and the responsibilities that you have whether that's a parent as a carer or just you individually like your mental health if you need to tend to certain things everyone just takes like flex leave which is what we call it and there's no questions asked yeah that's what it should be like I think yeah yeah and so I think that's why I've thought about it less and less whereas like you know in previous organizations I've felt like if I was sick I still needed to work Mm. or I would always need to offer like oh you know you know you can text me oh yeah or Um, like even though I'm off sick you can text (laughs) me or you can email me or call me if you need anything whereas here I don't even offer that I'm just like I never offer that like no way don't even (laughs) contact me yeah yeah but I think as we gradually move into the industry and become more experienced we know what our non-negotiables are and if we see something wrong with it I feel more confident in speaking up now 
Whereas previously I would have had such an internal battle about like, Mm. what does this mean for me? Why is this happening to me? Whereas now it's kind of like, okay, this is happening to me, but what can I do about it? And who can I go to to speak about it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Moving on to our next segment, which is ethnicity. So in the creative industry, our ethnic diversity is actually reasonably on par with the Australian population, Mm. but we are yet to see this at senior levels. So having diversity is not translated into equal experiences of inclusion and lack of discrimination. So the ethnic majority is um, Anglo, Celtic, European, and North American. And the ratio of ethnic minority to majority at senior levels is disproportionate to the ratio of our workforce as a whole. If you're looking at in total numbers, we've got ethnic diversity, but when you're looking at just senior roles, it's not really there, Mm. essentially. Um, And the ethnic minority groups facing the highest rate of racial discrimination are Chinese Asians, Southeast Asians, Southern Asians, Africans, and Indigenous people. They are also more likely to leave the industry. So... I guess not surprising. Yeah, because I think if you think about like the workforce, people who are in leadership roles have probably been in the industry for like 40 years, Yeah, like 30, 40 years, (laughs) right? And if you think about when our parents came to Australia, that was for me anyway, that was 26 years ago. Yes. And so it's only now that we're seeing people or children of like migrant parents move into the industry yeah. so it's kind of like a new wave yeah. of people coming in yeah and i think people like hire who they think is similar to them as well so you know if leaders are white they will generally support people who are similar backgrounds to them so the more asians or people of minority groups in leadership positions the more kind of growth in that area we'll have yeah mm. do you um see ethnic minorities in leadership roles at work and how does that impact you whether you do or you don't see them Yeah, I think to my earlier point, it's varied as I've moved workplaces. Like if you think about how long an organization has been around, Deloitte has been around for a real long time, right? And so I think inherently it kind of makes sense why there's less uh, cultural diversity in leadership. But there was also, I could see that there was more of a conscious effort being put into like who would make partner that year. It would be like a split of like this many females versus this many males or this many um, non-binary people mm-hmm. as well. So I think for an organization that has been around for a real long time, like they're starting to make different like changes now, but I was exposed to more people who were male. It was more male dominant, male dominant yeah. in leadership. Yeah, and more white. Yeah. yeah. Whereas as I've moved into agencies that are a lot younger, who have only been around for like 10, 15 years, because a workforce is also a lot younger, I feel like there's more gender diversity, more cultural diversity as well. So, yeah, it's varied as I've moved across different workplaces, but seeing more people who have, like, I guess diversity in ethnic minorities um, emerge has given me hope that it's changing. Yeah, Yeah. I think so. I think I've definitely seen, I guess, um, less, as in, like, in terms of leadership roles, they're generally majority white which we expect and it's like as per the results but I'm always so like pleasantly surprised when I see like those of culturally diverse backgrounds in leadership roles Mm. and I have seen them it's not impossible like I think at every maybe except my very first agency at every other agency I've been at I've seen people who are from minority backgrounds in leadership roles Mm -hmm. and I think that's such a promising sign because 
I actually remember at uni when I used to like intern for marketing companies or advertising companies, I rarely saw like, for example, Asians in leadership roles. But now, say like seven years later or however long it's been since first year uni, I'm seeing a lot more like Asians in mm. leadership roles. And like Wendy said, it definitely gives me reassurance that it's possible. Yeah. And I always gravitate towards them, obviously, because they're similar backgrounds. And like, I love to like understand like their journey and how they got to where they are. And I always try to ask like, you know, what is your experience with like, you know, discrimination in the industry? Like, how did you get where you are? But it's also interesting because sometimes I find like, you might see an Asian, for example, in a leadership role, but it, they're so different from what you are. If that makes sense? Like, yeah. obviously, it's not, there's not one type of person. There's not one type of Asian. But if you see, if I see a Chinese person in leadership, they might not have come from low SES backgrounds like we did. Yeah. So the more representation we get, the more stories we can kind of share. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Interestingly enough, reflecting on it in terms of people of like uh, cultural diverse backgrounds in senior like leadership roles, a lot of them were actually like international people mm, yeah, or people yeah. with international experience. Like that was a lot more attractive yes. than say an Asian Australian who's grown up in Australia all their life making it to leadership. Like that was especially when I was at Deloitte, yes. a lot of the Asian leaders that I saw were probably mostly from like, a different country yeah or they my experience is or they have been from very well-off families yeah yeah too or they've been in australia for like several generations yes yeah. right so yeah. it's, i think it's nice that we acknowledge that as well like just because you see an asian leadership doesn't mean it representative of all the experiences yeah yeah that's what i mean about like you can't really tell you can't make assumptions about someone's socioeconomic background until you get to know their story. Yeah. Or until you ask those questions that you mentioned earlier of like, you know, what's been their experience getting to where they are today? What's their background? Yeah. yeah. That's a good point because I actually like, um, at one of my previous workplaces, I met with the like, I don't know what you call it, like, we have a holding group that holds our company and then she's like one of the top dogs in the industry basically and I had like a mentoring chat with her and she is not Asian she appears white if that makes sense and like I made these assumptions that like oh she's a white female leader but when I met with her she was actually like born and raised in the west mm. like from like eastern European fam like parents and like she their family like were migrants as well and they came with nothing and she grew up in like a low SES background mm. so like you said like you can't make these assumptions because then after that, I was like, oh my God, like I can relate to her so much. Even though she's not Asian, she has a similar experience in terms of growing up in the West mm -hmm. and, you know, being from the ghetto, whatever you call it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess it'd be important for us to also like reflect on um, how we've leveraged our individual mm -hmm. like cultural experiences at work. I personally don't really shy away from sharing my lived experiences with people at work like I make it make an effort or make a conscious effort to share things from like my culture um because I think that invites people to ask you questions about why you do certain things mm -hmm. and it creates like the safe space for them to be curious whereas if you ne never share anything about your culture they don't feel comfortable asking about it either yeah. or they don't feel comfortable coming to you and asking for your opinion or your perspective. Yeah. yeah. I actually think it's a strength being from like a culturally diverse background 
because when all the leaders you see are from a one particular background, you being different and offering a different perspective, that's actually going to differentiate you and gives you leverage. Yeah. I think. Yeah. At my workplace, like I think the fact that we make it one of our like values that everybody shares their own work, that to me means that you share your own work because they also are acknowledging that you're you've probably got different like lived experiences Mm -hmm. everyone has a different perspective and in sharing your own work it's like creating the space for everyone to bring their own opinion to the table yeah whereas if it's like oh I'm the most senior person in the room so I'm going to present everything it's just like stopping people from feeling comfortable of like even having an opinion in the first place because they're like oh that's that person's going to speak for all of us so let's just sit back and let them speak for me yeah exactly Yeah, I think I I like these days, I definitely see like being Asian, being from my group is a strength. And I always try to remind myself or like I also like always speak out in terms of my opinions about diversity and inclusion. And when, you know, something doesn't sit right, I'm always like the first to say something about it. If a client is like, we want this ad to be more diverse and then the suggestions that come out like aren't really authentic or right, I'm always the first person to say, hey, like that's not right. Like it should, you know, from my lived experience this is my experience with it and how I feel like we should represent it but it's like opening up that conversation and feeling the confidence too because I am from that background yeah yeah and even having it respected as well right like yes. for people to actually listen to you and respond to your perspective is another thing too rather than it kind of being dismissed and swept under the rug yeah which I'm sure happens in other organizations as well yeah I agree yeah Let's move on to the next segment, which is about physical ability and mental health. So 58% of our industry is living with a mental health or physical health condition. Many are also not reporting their condition to the workplace. There's also a dual challenge here where like, how do we create an environment where people feel like they can safely disclose their challenge or their impairment, but also address like negative behaviors and microaggressions. I think that's, that is really scary. <laughs> like 58% yeah. of people are living with a mental health or physical health condition. But personally, that's half, that's more than half the people, so one in two. But at work, I've not, one in two people, I wouldn't assume yeah. that they would have a mental con- a health problem or a physical health problem because they're not disclosing it. Yeah. And you also don't want to assume that about someone. Yeah. It's not the first thing you think. No. Like, does this person have a mental health disability I feel like it's something that people need to bring to the table themselves and therefore creating the right space for them to bring it to the table is really important. Right. But I've, I've had colleagues um, pretty much say like, Oh, I have this disability. So this is how I work because that is how I operate. And there's not, there's absolutely no issue with it because you, you hear that and you're just like, okay, then you make a conscious effort to respect how they work yeah. and what their what their needs are. So I really value when someone's really honest because I'm like, okay, now I can work to help you yeah. rather than you feeling like you need to live up like to unspoken standards yeah. because you don't feel safe enough to, to disclose that you've got a mental health um, dis- or disability as well yeah I think just being aware that you know it's such a prevalent issue that you when you're working with people don't make assumptions that you know certain people can do certain things if that makes sense yeah because mm. people work differently people have different priorities people have different ways of working that mm. we need to be open to and respect as well yeah yeah 
The next segment is sexual orientation. So despite being an industry commonly characterized by being fairly, as fairly open, almost a third of the LGBTQI plus respondents chose not to disclose their orientation at work. So the visibility of this group in more senior roles is not in line with the overall distribution, possibly because many are not out at work. So 26% of LGBTQI plus respondents have experienced negative behavior in their workplace, 52% have observed casual discrimination, and 30% have heard complaints about being too politically correct, which is like, what? (laughs) (laughs) What does being too politically correct mean? So like, you're too PC, like if you raise like, oh, you shouldn't say that because of X, Y, Z, people are like, oh, you're being too politically correct oh okay you know like you're being too woke i don't know like you know what i mean like yeah too much or whatever it is like there's a right and wrong way yeah yeah mm. um so yeah i don't know i don't really have a obviously we don't have the personal experience to talk about it and i haven't actually seen a lot of um like stories or like perspectives at work about this area so i'll be interested to know like if you know you have any experiences yeah. yeah, this one's a hard one because, like, obviously we don't have the lived experiences, yeah. any lived experiences um, to speak to. But one of my biggest projects at Deloitte was um, what we called Outstanding 50. Mm-hmm. So that was an initiative um, that Deloitte runs every second year. And essentially it recognizes 50 leaders in who are part of the LGBTIQ plus community who are doing amazing work in their industries to bring that to the forefront yeah and through that project I learned so much about how people show up at work um being a part of that community and how they hold themselves and having the pride of being a part of that community I feel like through that now I notice um or respect people's pronouns more consciously oh, yes. yeah um I also feel like that led me to think about how do I show up at work as an ally? Um, I think it's harder now because I'm still getting to know my colleagues at Future Friendly as well. And whereas at Deloitte, it was a community that had already been established. And because of this initiative, that was also established. Mm -hmm. And so being really directly, I guess, impacted by it because I was part of the project team, I've become more conscious of those things. And that's what I mean by like you go through certain experiences that bring these issues to the forefront that you may not have been conscious of before. So that now has led me to feel like I do have some experience, but there's also so much for me to learn. Even what you said about being an ally, I think like when you carry yourself in that manner, it is like contagious. Like it, it will expose other people doing that as well. Like for example, an example is in our signature, we actually don't have like the template doesn't have like pronouns on it. Like, you know how normally your email signature, like these days, a lot of people are choosing to put their pronouns in the email signature, but I hadn't even thought about it. But then I saw somebody in their email signature incorporate into the template. And I was mm. like, oh, I didn't even think of like, it didn't cross my mind because it wasn't in a template. So the fact that I saw my colleague say like, you know, put their pronouns in the signature, I started putting it as well. Mm. And it's kind of like the little things you could do to like, kind of try to start something but also like um people have started kind of when you they introduce themselves to other people like stating their pronouns and it's something we're not used to because it's not a habit 
we we have right but when you're meeting people not assuming what their pronouns are that's really important and something we have to remind ourselves constantly because we're not it's not something that we are used to doing yeah because we we're not a part of that community it's like it doesn't mean that we can't play a part though yes as yeah. well yeah yeah so the next segment is age. So the workforce skews younger compared to profile of employed people in Australia. And the skew is even more pronounced in female staff. So there are more than 60% of female respondents who are aged under 35. The industry is also employing far fewer people aged 45 plus compared to the overall Australian workforce. But despite making up the majority of the workforce, the 25 to 44 age group have relatively poorer inclusivity experiences compared to their younger or older co-workers. So it's like we're an industry with younger people, but the younger people are receiving more discrimination, I guess. Yeah, yeah. which is very ironic, right? Yeah, it's yeah. very ironic. <laughs> <laughs> have you had any ex- uh, negative experiences due to your age? Um. I don't know, to be honest. Like, I, it's hard to tell, you know, like what you were saying. Is it because I'm Asian, because I'm female, because I'm, I'm young? But definitely, like, feeling the – like, feeling subconscious that I'm young. Like, I used to be in meetings where I'd be like, oh, my God, I'm the youngest in the room. And then suddenly I would just feel like no one's listening to me. But I think it could be in my head as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's the internal dialogue. Yes, yeah, internal dialogue because sometimes I feel like, oh, am I not being respected enough? because I'm young like is my opinion not carrying enough weight because I'm young so it's more so like the questions that I have in my head rather than the experience of it mm. but I've definitely heard of other people who have been told that they're too young for a certain role and they don't have enough experience for a certain role despite being so good at their job so another one is also people talking about Gen Z's in a negative way yeah <laughs> yeah I've, I've experienced poor that. Gen Z's yeah <laughs> Yeah, like, I don't know why, but they just get a bad rep. Yeah, I think it's also because people are acknowledging, like, Gen Zs are now entering the workforce, and it's, like, they're obviously radically quite different in the way that they perceive Mm -hmm. certain things and the opinions that they carry. I've heard people say, like, yeah, Gen Zs are not afraid to, like, say what they think and own it. Like, it's very unapologetic in that way. And, you know, I feel like we're in a weird space in terms of our age because we're almost between millennials and gen z's yes. in terms of like the types of trends that we pick we get up like the best of both worlds to be yeah honest. yeah essentially so because of that i've had experiences where like let's use tiktok for example right initially i was like do i tell people that i use tiktok or is that like a very gen z thing of me and do, will people respect me less if i mention something i've seen on tiktok right um and if i adopt those perspectives will people think like I'm just being like, oh, another young person, you know, who has an opinion, but it doesn't really matter. So I've had those internal dialogues as well. But what I've noticed is like, obviously with these trends that pop up, if you don't harness them, regardless of your age, you're not gonna be able to consider like the broader perspectives. And a lot of the work that I, that we create at Future Friendly is like obviously product driven, right? So we're creating products and we're creating products for people of the future. So if we can't understand where they're coming from, then we're creating products blindly, Yeah. right? And that's also with user testing. We do that a lot. We use their opinions to inform our like iterations, what we design. And so I think you, in order to do that work, you need to be open-minded. Agreed. Because if you're not open-minded, then 
inherently you've got like some bias when you're going through the insights that you've seen through testing. And the way that you register it is not going to be the same as someone who's being open-minded and thinking, oh, actually, that's a really great idea. Or that's a really great opinion. Let's consider it. Yeah. So having an open mind and disregarding people's perspectives because of their age, I think is really important, especially in the work that I do. Yes. So I think I've never been told like, you're, you're too young to do something, but I have had that internal dialogue, especially when I entered the workforce. I was like, okay, I think because of the way the company was structured at Deloitte, it was like, if you're a grad, there's a certain expectations of how you should behave. Basically, you do all the shit work and you just don't have an opinion. You just do the work, right? Whereas being in more of a flat hierarchy organization, I've never inherently felt like, okay, I shouldn't say this because like of my age or I feel um invalid because of my age so I think it comes down to like how the company is structured Mm -hmm. as well and the environment that it creates I think one thing we can also watch out in saying is that you know when people ask like what's how old you are and someone and then they go oh you're so young Mm. I think that's something like a little thing a little comment that people can like refrain from saying because it makes you it kind of validates that the internal dialogue oh am I so young you know yeah (laughs) yeah um the next segment and the last segment is social mobility So I actually found this one the most interesting segment. So employees are more likely to come from privileged backgrounds with far more coming from professional middle-class family backgrounds and relatively more having attended a private or fee-paying school compared to the overall population. So you're you're generally more likely to meet people who had come from like well-off backgrounds and have come from private schools, which is Mm. interesting. So those who attended private slash fee-paying schools are overrepresented at 54% versus a national average of 35%, which is like pretty interesting. So that's like half of the people coming from private schools Mm. compared to 35% of the national average. Um, Additionally, the entry-level roles are often low-paying and the industry favours those who can afford higher education or industry training, which means a certain level of privilege and family support is needed to enter the industry. So I find that really interesting because I actually see that at my workplace. Really? Like so. a lot of the people I speak to, they have, they have come from private schools. Mm-hmm. And I never really noticed that before until recently for some reason. Like maybe because I've never really asked people, like what school did you come from? It's not a, a yeah. conversation starter question. You not ask. really. But like, I don't know why, but currently, like currently in the workplace I'm at, like, these conversations have come up and it's interesting to see that like everyone can relate to a private school experience. And I'm like yeah. the few that's been to like a public school that nobody knows of. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's a topic that you discuss if you're working with people of a similar age. Yes. Because you're more interested in their background. You're like, oh, I wonder if we like know mm, each other or yeah. something like that. That's what I experienced when I was a grad because obviously when you're a grad most of the people that are being hired are probably around your age. Yeah. So you ask questions like, what school did you That's go true. to? What ATAR did you get? All those questions. Yeah. But I've never once been asked, now that I've been in the industry for four years, I've never once been asked, like, what school did you go to? Yeah, yeah. Most people really only ask, where do you live? Yeah, where do you live? Yeah. And I feel like that's an indication of, like, where you grew <laughs> up as well. Yeah. Um, but that's as far as it goes in terms of, like, trying to figure out what someone's socioeconomic status is yeah 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 it's interesting and i think the point here about like 
you needing more privilege to enter this industry. Like it kind of makes sense because the entry levels are low paying. So you need to be able to feel financially comfortable to pursue a career, creative career. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. I feel that a lot of people who I studied with were generally people who had been like their parents had been in Australia for mm-hmm. a long time and they've like they're multiple generations in Australia. Yeah. Right. Whereas for myself, when I was looking for a job after uni, like it wasn't just about like, oh, I'm going to go work at an agency that has a really great reputation. Beyond that, it was also about the pay. Yes. Whereas I feel like people who were from, who had like parents who worked in like white collar jobs were more comfortable talking about like culture as opposed to um, valuing like how much they were going to get paid. Yeah. So it it was less of a priority for them. Whereas for us, it's like being drilled into us. You need to worry about how much you're going to get paid because that's pretty much what secures your future as well and your level of comfort in the future as well. How, I guess, do you experience these social economic disparities in other ways at work? I think I notice the disparities when people talk about their personal lives. So when my colleagues talk about their families um, and their experiences as like parents or when they talk about like, oh, what they're going to do on the weekend. I'm like, oh, wow, that's kind of different to <laughs> what I do. Yacht club. <laughs> yeah. And also like when they ask me where I live, I always make an effort to say, oh, I like I grew up with, I grew up in Southwest Sydney, but now I live in XYZ. Yeah. And I've only recently moved out from right. my parents' place. Um, but in addition to that, I also, uh, when people talk about like their pathways into university as well. Like some people just went to like college, whereas like I went to a university and that was mainly because like, I never thought that TAFE or college was even an option. And that's where I see the disparity or I feel the disparity between myself and someone that's maybe like gone through TAFE because they've made a career change. Like there's definitely nothing wrong with that, but I feel like, I went down the more traditional Asian path. Yeah. 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 How about yourself? Um, I think the same when talking about like kind of personal lives, you kind of get like colleagues speaking about what their parents do and it's like white collar jobs, like really high up there in the corporate ladder and mm. things like that that you couldn't even imagine having migrant parents and then not being able to engage with those certain conversations because you don't have the experience to kind of relate to her, like being at a, pub, a private school or like, having parents in office jobs or like like you said the hobbies they do outside of work like I don't know golf and stuff like that (laughs) yeah no even the music that they listen to right like a lot of I don't know when like say a song comes on um I've had colleagues say oh my parents used to play this song (laughs) so much when we were growing up and I'm kind of just like uh, what is the song? <laughs> or, or like, oh, my parents and I used to go every year to this beach house somewhere up north. Yeah, or like they have a farm yeah, and I'm and like, like, what? We <laughs> <laughs> have a garden. <laughs> I can't relate, you know. Yeah. 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 Um, so kind of the overall themes and the next steps of the report is what we'll cover next. So overall themes from the report is microaggression is a common form of exclusion. So what microaggressions is, is the everyday, subtle, intentional, and sometimes unintentional interactions or behaviors that communicate some sort of bias towards a marginalized group. So these are less recognized, more subtle. So for example, being spoken over, um, people taking credit for your work, exclusion from events, calling women girls and not calling men boys. Oh, 
which is, I noticed that, like girls, you know, um, looking at your phone whilst talking to someone, assuming an older colleague cannot use technology. <laughs> so microaggression is the form of kind of discrimination that came up the most in the report, mm. which I guess kind of makes sense. Yeah. That's what we talked about diving deeper in. Um, other findings as age and gender are the most common forms of discrimination. Most discrimination or negative behavior goes unreported. So only in the overt and extreme actions, they're the ones where people will more likely report the situation. Mm -hmm. But other incidents such as microaggressions, which is more common, they're actually invisible to leadership. In addition to this, uh, a note on the diversity and inclusion in the work we create. The top five most underrepresented groups in the creative industry are those with different physical abilities, diverse range of gender identities and sexual orientations diverse physical appearance, diverse mix of ethnicity and older people as aspirational and without negative stereotypes. So in conclusion, the challenge is to create a deeply inclusive environment. One in five people are saying they're likely to leave the industry based on lack of inclusion and discrimination. And of those who are likely to leave, 70% are women and 45% are between 25 and 34. So I think it's a challenge for our industry. Like, how can we make our places more inclusive so that people don't leave yeah. work because of discrimination? And, like, also acknowledging that 25 to 34, this is the future mm-hmm. of our leadership teams, yeah. right? These are people who are rising in the ranks. So if we can't keep those people in the industry and harness their skills, yeah. then it's not a very bright future to look for. Yeah, I agree. It's quite dire. Yeah. (laughs) You lose these key groups of people. And 70% of women, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So look at the report. We'll link it in the show notes. It'll be interesting to see where our industry kind of takes this report and how different companies interpret this and do things about it. Mm. Some other ideas of like what we can also do. There are a series of resources from that particular report that we can link. So one of them is the guide to tackling microaggressions. So the key points that we've noted from this guide is to A, educate yourself, B, step up as an ally, C, raise awareness of microaggressions amongst colleagues and friends, and the last one is to advocate for organizational and or policy changes. We'll also link another resource called the six ways to actually push diversity. So one, saying you employ lots of women does not count as true diversity. You need to consider ethnicities, social economic backgrounds, age and more. If most of your most of the women are white, it's not really true diversity. Um, two, hiring POCs at lower salaries is a massive setback. Pay your POCs more. Don't wait for them to ask for it. Three, make a safe and inclusive space. Everyone has to do it, not just HR. Don't dismiss discrimination. Prove that you have a zero tolerance policy. Our next is tip the scales in favor of POCs, promote them, encourage them to speak up, give them more leadership opportunities. You can't be what you can't see. Second last one, be an ally, start meaningful conversations and speak up. And the last one is to push your clients to push diversity. So push back on clients and get all types of diversity into your ads and your creative work. Mm. That's super interesting because I think the work that we do is so like client heavy, right? So we're not just responsible for what we do in our immediate organization, but as people who are helping consult with a client, like we have a responsibility to help them change their organization as well and make them make suggestions to help them 
um, grow as well in this place. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think actually pushing your clients is a very effective way to kind of get more diversity and inclusion yeah. into the mainstream. Because you've also been brought in to be that could, advisor, yeah. right? Yeah. So you might as well harness the power of that um, and not just like answering the brief immediately, but beyond that, like looking at how they can grow like diversity and inclusion and other issues as well. Yeah. The last one is um, a interesting challenge, an interesting creative challenge from only one in the room. So this is an organization that Tracy and I um, follow and basically they have something called destroy this brief. And the brief is the creative and advertising industry needs diversity of thought, not only to continue creating culture shaping work, but to simply survive and remain relevant. So the ask from this brief is how can we make it easier for our industry to not only consider, but attract diverse talent? So what they're looking for is um, submissions with creative solutions of every shape and size that truly answer the brief. For example, is it a partnership with universities or other organizations? Is it changing existing regulations? Is it through an interagency commitment? And what they're looking for are submissions. So you can go on their website and have a look at the brief, read more detail about it. Um, Final submissions are due on the 31st of October. Yeah, And I think the selected winner, they will actually work with them to make this idea a reality, which is pretty cool. Cool. I think that's like a nice place for us to close off this discussion. I mean, for me personally, this report opened up a lot more like questions for me in terms of like what I can do as an individual to start questioning some of the things that I'm doing at my workplace. Yeah. And I think for me, like I've loved that this report kind of went through the different segments and the different ways that I guess like diversity inclusion is so broad. And sometimes when we, we, Wendy and I talk about it, in my head, I might be tunnel vision in cultural diversity. Yes. But when we went through this report, there's like age, there's social economic, there's, you know, physical abilities, there's everything. And there's just like showing you that there's so much breadth to this topic and really educating us on what else we can do in those other areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. On to our dinner table questions. If you could pick up one new skill instantly, what would it be? Um. So... I would like to know how to dance mm. or cook. Dancing or cooking. I feel like they're very useful skills to have. Yeah. I was thinking like music talent yeah. because we don't have any musical yeah. talents. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I was thinking like cooking because I feel yeah. like cooking now is a very like prevalent time in my life to be good at cooking. And I feel like so much is cent- like centralized yeah. or centered around food for us. Yeah. So yeah, I want people to think that I'm like a really great cook, master chef, or <laughs> like speaking a different Vietnamese language. or Chinese, yeah. like properly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, the next question is: Would you want a time machine or a magic wand? I think a magic wand. Okay. Yeah. Because I think everything happens for a reason. Yeah. And I wouldn't want to change anything in my past because it's shaped who I am today. Oh, okay. But what would you do with the magic wand? Well, I mean, if it means like, say I could help someone in that moment yeah. and I could just wave a magic wand yeah. to do that, then yeah, I would want to have that tool. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, I think me too. Yeah, magic wand. I'll make myself a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make myself rich. <laughs> I don't need to go back in time or forward in time. Or I don't need to, I don't really need to redo anything. So yes. Yeah, it's more instantaneous. Yeah. Ding. 
What is something ridiculous you believed in as a kid? Um, so Barney, you know Barney the yeah the purple dinosaur. I thought it was real because I had because I had a Barney <laughs> toy growing up, and I used to watch Barney, and they would how would Barney come alive again? Would they wish for Barney to come alive or something like that? But I was always like with my toy, like Barney, like come alive. Like I would think like maybe he's like. Maybe I could have what the TV show did. Because, <laughs> like, it's a toy and it becomes real, right? So when yeah. I was a child, I genuinely thought, I was like, maybe my Barney toy could come alive. Yeah. yeah. I feel like it was probably something similar. Like, I used to watch, um, there was this show, it's like fairies. And there were, like, these two fairies. One was, like, blonde, one was brunette. Okay. And I forgot what the premise of the show was, but essentially they had, like, magical powers to yeah. transform and stuff. And I thought that was, like, real for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's mostly just things that you see on TV, right? Yeah, that's true. Like, magic, you. right? You think magic was real. Yeah. 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 Anyway, that's it for this episode. As always, uh, follow us on Instagram. Join the conversation at a seat at our table.podcast. Also, give our website a peep, a seat at our table.com.au. Mm. Leave us a review as well. Yeah, leave us a review. Five stars only. Spotify. Yes. <laughs> please <laughs> no but we obviously want to hear more about i guess like how we can always improve um on our website at the very bottom in the footer there is a little suggestion box um put in new ideas and maybe guests that you would want mm-hmm. us to reach out to as well but until next time bye, bye.